You're listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is a replay from the virtual live broadcast series titled Women's Health 2020, Beyond the Annual Visit, provided by Omnia Education. Before beginning this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Welcome to our discussion on new horizons in the personalized management of uterine fibroids. I am Dr. William Mencia, and I'm joined today by Dr. Stephen Cohen and Ms. Satiria Venable. She is the founder of the Fibroid Foundation. Dr. Cohen, Ms. Venable, welcome to the Omni Education's Women's Health 2020 program. It's a pleasure to be here today. Happy to be here with you. Dr. Cohen, let's start with you. Early recognition of uterine fibroids is certainly essential for improving outcomes for patients. What are some of those early signs and symptoms that patients should be looking for? Well, that's a very good question. Um, And again, fibroids, like many medical uh, problems, uh, present differently in different patients at different ages. Um, And so always there's a differential diagnosis. And so what patients should look for and often do is pain. Uh, They would have no idea necessarily that they have fibroids, but something's going on in their pelvis because they're having pain. Uh, Pressure, uh, urinary frequency, uh, problems like that would be something that the patient would bring the patient um, into the office or have her question what's going on. But by far and away, the most acute and the most uh, um, common problem that we see these patients uh, come in with is abnormal bleeding. And in most situations, it's heavy, what we now call heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, and the patient comes in and says, um, I'm bleeding very heavy. Uh, I either bleed each month or I bleed irregularly and something's going on. Um, can you help me find out what that is? What is the population of people we see with fibroids? Well, in autopsy reports, 80% of women have fibroids. Of course, the majority of those are asymptomatic, small, um, and incidental. But 80% of women have fibroids. We know that there is some familial uh, uh, history with those. There may be something genetic, people looking into genetics, uh, with who could develop as fibroids. Um, and so that all goes on. And we certainly know that uh, the race uh, plays a difference. And we're, I think as providers, all most of us are well aware that uh, African-American black females uh, have a much higher incidence of fibroids, multiple fibroids, and their symptoms begin a decade earlier than other races. So we have to be on the lookout with those uh, patients uh, for fibroids as a cause of their um, symptoms. Turning to you, Ms. Venable, you've had your own personal experiences with uterine fibroids. Can you describe for us your early symptoms when you first knew that something was off? And what challenges and barriers did you experience along the way? Sure. And I agree with Dr. Cohen. I've heard fibroids described as a snowflake and they dis- they display very differently in every woman. And I think that's the perfect description. I had menarche, the start of my period at 11. And from that age, I had period cramps that were like contractions. I would have to leave school. My friends and I would be in school taking six or 800 milligrams of Motrin because of the pain from our periods every month as teenagers, preteens. 
And so as I progressed through my teen years, that became the norm, that level of pain and and seeing my mom experience heavy menstrual bleeding and wearing two sanitary napkins and just plugging along through everyday life. So that was my normal. And when I was in college, my bleeding became a lot heavier. And by the time I finished college, I was enduring the symptoms just every month. And um, it got to a point even for me where I said, I have to go see a doctor. Um, And I was diagnosed with fibroids. Um, Had never heard the word, (laughs) despite coming from a family where clearly there had been some evidence of something sparking heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, and so that was my my journey to um, diagnosis. I was told I had uterine fibroids. My initial reaction was panic because um, you don't know whether it's cancerous or not. Um, and I wasn't given much information at the time, but uh, I then started the process of trying to find out what my options were for treatment. So Dr. Cohen, what information is critical in your opinion in making the correct diagnosis? What are the tests that you often run? Well, um, making the diagnosis of uterine fibroids or leomyometer as they're called uh, specifically is not a difficult diagnosis compared to other diagnoses that we make in the office. For example, um, uh, endometriosis, um, uh, because number one, uh, we do a pelvic exam. And because a uterus is usually enlarged in general or irregular, um, we are tipped off right away with just a very simple, non highly technical pelvic exam that's been done for over 100 years. Um, and then usually once we make that uh, what we see when we suspect that something's irregular is we get a pelvic ultrasound. Uh, nowadays, most of that's point of service. We don't even have to refer it out of the office. We just pick up the ultrasound machine that we almost always have in the office. And in, in two, three minutes, we can get a good image of what the uterus um, looks like and get an image of those uh, fibroids. So ultrasound, be it a simple ultrasound or highly advanced 3D vascular flow ultrasound gives us a good idea of what's going on. And of course, we want to exclude different things. If a patient comes in with heavy bleeding, we need to exclude pregnancy and ectopic pregnancy, endometrial cancer, and a litany of other uh, diagnoses, which we do other testing for um, to exclude other causes that may look like fibroids to us initially. And Ms. Venable, Could you describe for us your own personal diagnostic journey? Were the tests that uh, Dr. Cohen just went over, was your experience similar? Somewhat similar, yes. I've had four fibroid surgeries, so many, many scans. When I was first diagnosed, I had an ultrasound. I've also had a sono um, ultrasound, as as Dr. Cohen referenced. Um, My third surgery, I was sent for an MRI. Um, because I even wanted to know what the blood supply was to each fibroid and exactly where they were located. And it gave me a, a, a huge level of comfort to have my surgeon not only send me for an MRI, but also draw me a picture of my uterus and where the fibroids were located and how he was going to do the surgery because he knew that my first surgery had been a failed surgery and I had some significant apprehension about 
um, having a surgical procedure again. I think it's important to note too that as a woman going into stirrups, it makes you feel very vulnerable. And often now um, there are more than one person in the room. And I've come to prefer an MRI over a vaginal exam. Um, And when I'm in the emergency room, I had to be transfused a little over a year ago. The attending worked with me and he knew that I was an educated patient and he did not do a vaginal exam because there's nothing worse than going into the emergency room and having a vaginal exam by someone who does not always do um, gynecologic examinations. It's agonizing. And so he just took my labs. Um, We kind of worked together to get to my um, transfusion. But um, my preferred scan is definitely an MRI. I do know that it's cost prohibitive. And I I do know that most women, most women in our community are diagnosed at first via a pelvic exam and ultrasound. You mentioned working together, and that's a really important concept that I want to touch upon. Before we move to a discussion on medical therapy, let's take a moment to discuss the collaborative nature of the physician-patient relationship and the importance of patient counseling and shared decision-making. Dr. Cohen, from your experience, what works? Well, that's an interesting point. You know, I grew up in an age where the patient came in, we made the diagnosis, and we, as gynecologists, we told her what she needed to have. And she said, yes, sir. And she walked out whether she wanted to or not. And, and it was we, she, we were like the authoritarian figure. That's no longer the case, and it, that's a good thing. It's no longer the case. Now we have to sit down with the patient, or we want to sit down with the patient. There's a better way of expressing it. Say, what do you want? What bothers you the most about this? What would you like me to do? What uh, do you want to become? Do you want to maintain your fertility? Or, or do you not want to maintain your fertility? Do you have more than one problem? Are you having pressure, pain, urinary frequency, and heavy bleeding? Or is it only one aspect that really needs treatments, even though you've told me you have these other uh, problems uh, as well? But everything's right. Everything's on the table. There's nothing that's wrong um, with any of those options, provided the patient then understands what in, what the uh, procedures entail or the medication entails and what the risks of those treatments are. And you really need to take time to go over the risks because some people, for example, the person just says, well, just, just do a hysterectomy, doesn't understand the risks oftentimes, rightly so, doesn't understand the risks. So you have to be very clear, review it, put it in her terms. If she's well-educated, depending on what level of education she has, maybe you, you have to present it in different ways, uh, but we have to really talk to the patient. And that's where the average time spent with a patient in the office is seven minutes makes it really difficult to do because it's, a, it's not a short discussion and we need to provide it. We need to provide that information. That is so true, Dr. Cohen. Ms. Venable, what does the ideal partnership look like to you from a patient perspective and does it match your personal experience? I had to evolve into the, a great um, physician-patient relationship. And what that entailed for me personally was asking the physician questions, trying to get to know them, to give them the hint that they needed to get to know me as well. Um, and uh, it was a funny story after my myomectomy. 
I asked the nurse when uh, the doctor was going to come in to see me. And she said, he's saving you for his last patient because he knows you're going to have a lot of questions. And that made me giggle because it let me know that he had carved out the time to sit down and talk with me. Um, I think that most uh, often it's great to approach it the way that Dr. Cohen said, which is to ask the patient what her preferences are what she is experiencing and to rank those concerns. Um, because I always say that every woman is an expert in her own body. She may not know the medical term for what she's experiencing, but she can describe to you what is different, how it's different, um, what plagues her the most. And it's important to understand all of those dynamics when you're speaking with her. And one of the ways our organization tries to help the physicians is by providing that education that they may not have the time in the course of a day to be able to share with the patient to make her visit much more pleasant. Um, we give her questions to take, to ask the doctor. We try to share uh, potential talking points so that they walk into the office with a little bit more knowledge to be able to have a better experience. And I also try to communicate frequently, which is a new thought, is that women may not want to yield their uterus just because they're done with childbearing. Um, many women, myself included, want to keep their uterus. And so it's, it is different for every single person. And it is so important to understand um, the risk. And it's important to understand the recovery as well. And Ms. Venable, as a follow-up, you mentioned some of those resources that you've been providing. Are they available somewhere? Are they available on your foundation website? They are. They are available on our website, and we do one-on-one peer-to-peer counseling through our chapters. And so we've. I I came to find through my surgical experiences that I wasn't prepared for my post-surgery experience. And the goal was to help women through that experience and make sure that they knew what to expect and that they had someone to talk to when they were home alone recovering. And that is invaluable. I had someone to walk me through UFE um, and we walk through women through surgeries every day. So it, it makes their overall experience hopefully much, much better their recovery. And um, that's why we try to be a a source of support that way. That's wonderful. So let us turn our attention now to the medical management of uterine fibroids, especially in the preoperative and premenopausal setting. We've seen exciting advances in our understanding of the disease, as well as with therapies. Dr. Cohen, would you bring us up to speed on some of these advances? So with treating bleeding, we could certainly use standard uh, hormonal suppression or regulation that's been used for years, um, decades. Um, And that would be either combined oral contraceptives or some of the progesterone-only pills or uh, Depo-Provera by injection or um, any of the um, other ways of delivering progesterone. It's very effective. It's Certainly there are complications with it and side effects, 
Um, and not everybody can take all of those things, but sometimes we can control bleeding. This comes into effect more often in the uh, later reproductive age woman than the early reproductive age woman, because oftentimes she's had fibroids for decades, but now that she's transitioning into menopause, her hormonal regulation is coming out of whack. And so if we can control her hormonal supply to the uterus, we can control her bleeding, even though we're not changing her fibroids. So in that group of patients, we've been very successful either suppressing for a short period of time. We can use uh, continuous oral contraceptives to stop her periods. We have a, we have a whole uh, quiver of uh, various hormonal options. In the patient that does not have a fibroid in her uterus, but in, only in the wall of the uterus or outside the uterus, we can use a progesterone-secreting IUD. Oftentimes, even with fibroids, these, these IUDs secrete, uh, decrease bleeding dramatically. And in a group of patients, um, early when these, when these IUDs were coming out, these were not patients necessarily with fibroids, but they were patients who had heavy bleeding or were scheduled for hysterectomy. Three out of uh, IUD was placed, and three out of four of those patients um, decided not to have their hysterectomy. So we have other devices and other ways of delivering. We also have a tendomatic acid, which will, uh, which causes uh, basically is an anti-factor. So that what happens is you form clotting, good clotting, not bad clotting, as uh, we would say. And so your bleeding can drop 50% even with fibroids. And you take that during the menstrual period. And lastly, uh, we have GnRH um, agonists and antagonists, especially the antagonists which have recently come out, which dramatically reduce bleeding uh, and are very simple to, to use with a relatively low side effect um, profile. I'd like to say a, a few words about the uh, very new medication that the FDA just approved uh, three months ago, uh, for specifically for heavy uh, menstrual uh, bleeding associated with fibroids. This carries uh, with it a very specific indication that we really haven't had in this form or fashion before. And what this drug um, does, it's what we call a GnRH uh, antagonist. Uh, and they've been around for a while, but this one you take orally. The drug first came out for endometriosis uh, a year and a half ago, and it's now in a product, a combined product, that's approved for that indication for heavy bleeding uh, associated with fibroids. Um, it's very safe. Essentially, it carries um, the same uh, complications or risks as a oral contraceptive, a birth control pill, and the endometriosis drug, uh, Elagalux. So it's something that if maybe uh, non-steroidals don't work or an oral contraceptive didn't work, that you, we can really shorten your, you, you don't have to go over extended years of treatment to try to find something that works. I think this is going to be a game changer um, and will help many patients. And the studies have shown uh, that your menstrual flow will decrease by somewhere between 50 and 80% within a month to two period of time. So it's very fast acting. So these certainly are exciting times. Ms. Venable, I'd like to ask you about your experience in the management of your uterine fibroids. Um, could you describe that a little bit for us? Absolutely. 
it was there was really a progression when I was in my late teens. I started taking birth control pills, and at that time, that helped to eliminate the intense, horrific pain I experienced um, at um, the onset of my period. And actually, that pain never returned that way that it had in my teens, which was interesting. Uh, the birth control pills worked. I like to say they worked until they didn't. I, I remember where I was the day that I left the house for work the first time I had breakthrough bleeding uh, when the, the birth control pills stopped working. So I went, um, I decided to stop taking them because I thought that my body could control the bleeding better than the pill at that stage. I was right about that, but I had no idea how badly the bleeding would be without the birth control pill. And that's what led me to my second laparoscopy because my body was trying to flush out a two centimeter pedunculated fibroid. I, I tried to use birth control pills at some point to be able to travel um, for a vacation and it didn't work again because my hormones were so strong at that time. Um, and I, it, I had I experienced breakthrough bleeding while on my vacation, but I'm hoping that the portability uh, and the new medical therapies that were just approved this year can provide women with relief in those types of situations as a bridge to menopause um, prior to surgeries um, for travel. I used to have to travel across the country. And if you hit turbulence and you're unable to get up on a flight and you have a gush or it, it's just a, a horrible situation. If you have to sit still for five hours and you need access to a restroom, you know, less than every hour. So um, I think that the medical therapies hold a lot of promise and it's, it's good that we have some new tools. Let's shift gears here to a very timely topic and that is the COVID-19 pandemic. In many chronic diseases, we've seen diagnostic delay, we've seen delays in initiation of treatment, as well as adherence. Dr. Cohen, from the healthcare field perspective, how has the COVID-19 pandemic altered the landscape of how uterine fibroids are managed, and how have you overcome these challenges in your practice? What was delayed was maybe changing therapy, maybe repeating the ultrasound, uh, maybe doing a, a diagnostic procedure to see if the fibroids uh, had grown. Uh, those were the things that were um, changed to some uh, degree. And of course, elective surgery. So for as you all know, for a while, we weren't able to do elective surgery. Now that's pretty much changed back so that we, most, most hospitals, most offices are doing elective surgery, using all the precautions, but still doing elective surgery. We're seeing patients face-to-face -face, uh, when we need to. Uh, now, if it's just a minor tune-up or a question about her fibroids, we're obviously doing that over telehealth. We don't need to examine the patient. We don't need to get an image. So that works fine. So I haven't found um, many of the diagnoses and diseases in my practice COVID has caused a significant delay. With fibroids, I still, and, and I think those around me, we still saw that acute patient, that acute bleeding, the sharp pain, the agonizing pain, the increase in pain. So true. And Ms. Venable, from a patient perspective, how have you seen the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on access to care for women with uterine fibroids? 
I think there there has been an upside and a downside. The upside is that telehealth has made physicians in many instances much more available to patients because they weren't doing surgeries um, and they were then available to have a telehealth visit or look at a scan and maybe take a little bit more time and the patient had the luxury of being in their own home. The downside is that uh, the hospital delays or the elective surgery cancellations were different state to state. So while um, some physicians were still providing those surgeries, many were not. And we counsel many patients on how to maintain um, heavy menstrual bleeding or things to do to cope while they were waiting if a surgery had been canceled. And then in some instances, because heavy menstrual bleeding can progress so rapidly, by the time the surgery was rescheduled with many of the ladies in our community, they may have had to then wait because then they were too anemic for the surgery. So it, the, the experiences can vary greatly. Uh, I'm not as, as certain about other countries, um, the dynamics with COVID, but that was uh, the experience in the United States. Well, this has certainly been a fascinating conversation. But before we wrap up, can each of you share with our audience your one take-home message? Dr. Cohen, let's start with you. Yes, I think the take-home message is we've come a long way in a, in a relatively short period of time in being able to treat the uh, patient who has uh, symptoms from fibroids, or for that matter, non-fibroids, but we're here, we're talking about fibroids, and that she shouldn't hesitate to come in to discuss um, to read, to learn, and to review with her physician, provider, or nurse practitioner, or any other person that she talks to, what she's read, and, and get her questions answered. The, the, the takeaway message from this is find a provider you're comfortable with. Find somebody, like any, with any disease you might have or symptom, who you can talk to and you can believe. And if you, can, if you find that provider, we have the tools to make you better. We have those tools. So just be comfortable with your provider, have the discussion, you find someone that you've made a mistake, that then you don't that you don't feel that you're getting the response you need, find another provider. And Ms. Venable? I would agree. I think that um, one of the most important things is to forge that relationship and find a provider whom you're comfortable with. And I would ask the providers to avail your patients of all treatment options, even if you do not provide them. Because a lot of what we do at the Fibroid Foundation is help to help our members to find uh, areas or offices where they can be treated with the treatments that they may be aware of, but weren't presented with as an option. Wonderful. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have today. I want to thank our audience for listening, and a special thank you to Dr. Stephen Cohen and Ms. Satiria Venable for sharing all of your valuable insights. It was great speaking with both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash omnia. Thank you for listening.